You guys doing all right today? All right. If you got your Bible, I would suggest you grab a pen and make notes because I've got, I think, 20 scriptures today, which is like 18 more than I usually use. So we're on week three of the cost of a king. Like many things in life, we don't really realize what it's going to take to have a, a king in our life. Anybody ever set out to do a remodel project of your house? Anybody in here? Okay, about 10 of you. One of the things they say is it takes more time and more money, and it's messier than you ever think. My wife and I have been talking. Oh, yeah, Jen's going through one right now. I didn't even think about that, but yes. Uh, my wife and I have talked, really, since we moved into our house. Um, it took us so long to find a house after we moved here, and we needed something that would work before the start of the school year. And so we feel blessed that we are where we are, but it's, it's the smallest house we've had since we've had kids. And if you know me at all, I like to spread out. Give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Um, I grew up in a six-bedroom house that was over 3,000 square feet, and there were four of us. So I had space. And so we've talked. Should we remodel? Or should we get something different? Or should we just sit here, which is my go-to natural tendency, because both of the others just overwhelm me. And every time we come to it, it's like, do we want to do this? Do we want to engage in this? It's a lot more than what you think. Seems like, oh, it's so simple. If you don't like your house, just go buy another one. But it's so, like, how do I buy a house when I got to sell a house in order to buy the next? It's really complicated, and I can't figure it out. And that's just a simple analogy of what it's like sometimes. We think it's so simple. We think, well, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give everything I am and all that I have to follow Jesus. And then we begin to do it and realize it's really, really complicated. It's really hard to really make Jesus king in our life. I'm not talking about, yeah, I'm good, I'm going to heaven, I got saved. But what does it really take to have Jesus be Lord in our lives? And... It takes a lot more than most of us realize or want to give or are willing to, to do. Um, week one of this series, we talked about kind of the king, and when you serve an earthly king, they take what they want. You don't have a choice. They take it, you give it, and you smile while they do it. And week two, we talked about who's really king in your life. And if you look at... There's a few things you can look at to find out. Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your emotional energy? Those are the things that really have that place in your life. And too oftentimes, we want to serve a God that really requires nothing of us, that there's no expectation that I have to do anything. But, you know, I, I love God, but how much do I really have to do? I don't want to have to get up every Sunday and go to church. I don't want to have to give up my money. I, you know, it's one thing to throw some candy in the bin, but I don't want to show up and help the day before Easter. I like to sleep in on Saturday. Whatever it is, and it's not about what we do, but it's about where do I spend my time, where do I spend my money, and where do I spend my emotional energy? Because that defines and that shows who our king really is. So you saw the kids walk through with palm branches. I told my wife, for those people who aren't from a church background, this is just one crazy moment in their life. Like they're sitting going, 
I have no idea what I just walked into. But for those of us who know the story, we understand we're trying to help them learn and discover and know the story. Tactile things help people learn. And so they walked through with palm branches, waving them. Some themselves looked confused. Some were more interested in hitting the kid in front of them, which is, that would have been me as a child. Um, But they're there and they're waving the palm branches. And they're doing that as this reminder of, at one time, Jesus came into a city and the city came out and said they wanted him to be king. And less than a week later, some of those same people are crying, crucify him. And even those who weren't crying that did nothing to stop it. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28, says, Then he said this. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where, as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Now, even saying that, if somebody came to my driveway to steal my car and said, my Lord has need of it, I think I'd still try to stop them. So those who were sent their way and found it just as he had said to them, but as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And as he knew, drew near the city, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. But you did not know the time of your, vis- of your visitation. He comes into the city, and the people celebrate. Before he ever gets there, and then he gets to the city, and he says he weeps over the condition of them. It breaks his heart to see who they are and what they are. Because he knows, not that, he knows he's going to be crucified, but that's not what he fears. He knows that even after that, they're not going to understand who he is. You know what breaks Jesus' heart? It's not your sin. It's the lack of understanding that people don't get that there's a way free from sin. He knows you're going to sin. He sees the prisoner and he wants to see the prisoner loosed. He sees the broken and he wants to see the broken made whole. He sees the lacking and he wants them to know there's more to life than this. 
and he sees us, and he knows that we don't recognize who he really is. We want salvation. We don't want to die and have this miserable existence. But that's not the same as wanting him to really be king in our life. That's why he's weeping. He's weeping because he thinks there's so much more for you and you have no idea what it is and you won't walk in it. Is he really king of kings? 1 Timothy 6.15 tells us, which he will manifest in his own time. He was the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings, lord of lords. He's going to come back and he's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. Is he king of kings in our life? Revelation 17, 14. If Jesus does hold the rule of kings in our lives, do we really stand up for him? Because it says, those who call him king of kings, those who live with him as the king of kings, they're going to stand with him and stand by him, and he's going to recognize you. So what does that look like? His disciples who had walked with him for three years, every day, went where he went, ate where he ate, slept where he slept, and learned from him. They saw the miracles firsthand. They do these things, and then they're excited about the entry. They're excited about what's going on as they come into the city, thinking, finally our time has come, it's paying off. And then five days later, the point at which he's betrayed, says there's only one that's at the cross with him. And these are the people that walked with him in the flesh. How can we possibly think we're better than that? How can we think it? The reality is, you're not. You're a sinner, but you're a sinner that he looks at and says, there's hope for you because I love you. There's hope for you because there's something more. The triumphal, the triumph of a king in our lives. He asks so little, and yet he promises so much. So what does he ask? This is where you're going to have to jot down some scripture. He asks us to worship him in spirit and in truth, John 4, 23 and 24. He asks for communication with the Father. It says, when we pray, not if you pray, Matthew 6, 6. When you pray, pray this way. Not, hey, if you get a chance, why don't you commune with the Father? He models it for us over and over and over. This is how you do it. It's not a formula for making your prayers come true. It's a formula for recognizing who God is in our life and the fact that we need communication with him. He asks... For the, our focus to be on the eternal, not on the temporary. Matthew 6, 20 and 21. Place your treasure in something eternal, not simply for today. But he doesn't want us to be so focused on what is to come that we miss the joy of living in the experience that we've been given in our humanity. It's this fine line of, does it make a difference in my life today? If it only makes a difference in my life for someday, I'm missing out. But if it doesn't make any difference in my life today, then what's the purpose of it? And that's not how Jesus sees it. He sees it as focus on the eternal, not the temporary, and know where you're placing your treasures, 
but live a full life while we're here. Mark 10, 45, he asks us to serve all and says the greatest of these is going to be the one who serves. The greatest is the one who does for others. Matthew 22, 36 through 40, he asks us to love all, love the least of these, to love people. Those are the things he asks from us. To worship in spirit and in truth, communicate with the Father, focus on the eternal, to serve and to love. So what does Jesus promise? He will know us and he will petition on behalf to the Father. He says, I know my sheep and I call them by name. You're not just another one. He knows you. He knows where you're at. He knows who you are. 1 John 4.8 says we will have a knowledge of genuine love. No one, no one, no one knows what love is except he who knows God. There's a substitution, there's an imitation, there's an effort, but you can't know God, or you can't know love outside of knowing God. Promises us real joy. This one's always hard for people because they say, but I'm always sad, and that can be. But here's what it says in Psalm 33. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. My heart's going to rejoice in him because I've trusted him. 1 John 5.13, I'm going to jump back there real quick. It tells us that there is eternal life with the Father. And oftentimes, we start to think that eternal life is all that matters. But you see that he says, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. He's telling you, if you believe in God, I'm giving you eternal life. Continue to believe in Him. It's more than a one-time thing. It can be really easy to grasp onto it at some point when you're in desperation, but then when things are going well, we kind of forget who He even is. When you're in the sinking ship and you're desperate for hope, you jump in the lifeboat. The problem is, when the lifeboat gets to shore, do you still recognize and realize who he is? Because so oftentimes, we get to shore and we just go, whew, glad I'm over that, and we just move on. And God doesn't ask anyone to just sit in the lifeboat once you're on shore, but he asks you to go and bring that message of hope to others. That message of promise, that message of who Jesus is, that's what he's asked us to do. God could have used anything in the universe, but he looks and he says, I want you, as an individual, to take this to other individuals. I recently read something that said, God doesn't need humanity. And I thought, no, he doesn't. But he chose to use humanity. So in other words, you're chosen for a purpose, you're chosen for a cause, you're chosen because he wants you to have something, And he wants you to take that message of hope to the next generation and to the next people. He doesn't need you, but he's chosen to allow us to. You're made new. 2 Corinthians 5, 
17 says, you are a new creation. Too many people don't believe that they're a new creation. They believe they're recycled. They believe that they're still this old sinful human, but we're not new. He's not saying you're improved. He's saying you're literally new. Doesn't mean we don't sin any longer, but it does mean we start again. And what a beautiful picture to actually go and start again, to start fresh, to not have any of this past stuff that we've carried with us, to be able to do something more. And finally, the one that we all want to hear, you will be hated. John 15, 18 through 19, here's what it says. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's true. Things will come against us all the time. And I'm not talking about, oh, I have a flat tire. That's persecution from the enemy. It's not. I ran over a nail. That's why I have a flat tire. Walked out to my car this morning, had a flat tire, found the nail. I was like, oh, there it is. It's not the world attacking me. That's reality. And yet, the world doesn't like me. The world doesn't like what I stand for and what I believe in. But really, they don't like who I am in Christ because it makes them nervous and it makes them scared. Because if you don't understand it, as Paul says, it's foolishness to those who don't believe, but it's life to those of us who are under the blood who understand what the cross means. It's foolishness to those who don't believe. But to those of us who are saved, it's life. People that don't understand, that don't believe, they're always going to hate you because you stand for something different than them. So here's some thoughts when deciding whether or not you want Jesus to be king in your life. Because it's so much easier to just go, yeah, God's good. I know that but I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to give up. I don't want to have to pursue. I don't want to have to chase. But here's the thing. You have a choice. That's the first part of this conclusion. You have a choice. You can allow him to reign in your life, to really be king, or you can just go on and check in and check out and live. And God's not angry at you. God just knows there's so much more for you. Jesus wants all of you, but he knows humanity very well. He wants everything that you are, not because he's greedy, but because he knows what's best for you. And too often times we think, he wants too much from me. I can't do it all. And he's looking and saying, stop doing and just start being in me. Just start spending time with me. And it's not about doing, it's about becoming more like him. And that's so scary for so many of us. Because those same things that help define us, those same things that help shape us, those same things that give us comfort and peace, sometimes those are the things he's looking and saying, I need you to give this up. So here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. What is holding me back from truly making Jesus my king? It's not necessarily bad things. 
Sin is not our only obstacle in our life. There's a lot of good things that absorb so much of our time that we can no longer be focused on God. It takes so much of our energy that we can't really have that meaningful relationship. Sometimes it's a habit. Sometimes it is sin. Sometimes it's past negative thoughts. Sometimes it's a ritual. Sometimes it's the way you were raised or the way you learned to cope. So many of the things that psychologists and counselors deal with are helping people learn that the way they learn to cope might have helped them survive at one point, but now it's holding them back from becoming who they need to become. Because children do things in order to survive. But if you don't believe it, meet an adult child who was raised by an alcoholic parent and watch some of their tendencies. They were survival tendencies when they were young, but now it keeps them from being attached to people because they learn that in certain situations you run instead of communicate and deal. And the same is true in what holds us back from really allowing Jesus to be king in our life. Is we had a negative whatever as a child. We had legalism thrown on us or our sin thrown on us, or even well-meaning people. We had purity culture. We had too much of something that we weren't prepared to experience and see. And so we run from the church and we run from God. And it's not that you don't love God, it's that you're scared. You're scared to death because it gets weird. And some of you are in here just waiting. I know, I was at church before. I'm just waiting for it to get weird. Any moment now, they're going to start the weird stuff. Something I say quite often is one of the best things we can do for the cause of Christianity is just be a little bit less of a jerk sometimes. But that being a jerk comes out of fear and pain and past hurt. And it's a defense mechanism. And maybe we've got to figure out why am I so defensive and why do I got to be a jerk to people? We can choose to make him Lord doesn't mean we're sinless, but it means he's going to change us. And change is hard. Change sounds great most of the time, but most of us don't really like it because it doesn't look like what we want it to or what we think it should. When I was in the district office in Iowa and I would go and I'd work with churches and um, maybe they were doing a pastoral transition and we'd do these little things and one of the things I would say is, change is really hard because it doesn't look like what you think it's going to look like. As soon as your church starts to change, you think, oh boy, we're ready for change. We need some different things. But that doesn't mean it looks like what you want it to. Change in your life may not look like what you want it to. Most churches in America pray for growth, and as soon as it happens, they get really uncomfortable because somebody's sitting in their seat. Somebody's parking in their space, and now I have to walk two blocks to get to church? Forget it. I'll just stay home because it's more convenient. The older people don't like the new music. The younger people wonder why the music's 10 years behind. It's true. One group, the preacher just doesn't bring enough fire. The other group, why is he always yelling at us? And it's the same sermon. I've heard both on the same day before. Why did you yell today? Why don't you really bring it, Jeff? It's okay. 
we all have our mind of what should be said and done. You know, the pastor didn't even shake my hand or talk to me last week. Of course, I did go out a side door and he was standing at the back, but that's not really my fault. We all have this thing in our mind that we want, and we all think we want change until change happens, and then, man, it makes us uncomfortable. Because, like, when I was going through some things in my life, and I was going to counseling, and I was starting to change, I felt like I had to give up everything I ever am. And I told someone, a friend of mine, I said, I will never feel normal again. And he looked, he said, that's not true. But your normal needed to change because it was unhealthy. Oh, that's painful. Don't tell me that, because then that means it really is my fault that I'm in this mess, and I want to blame society and people not being nice to me. My normal changed, but my normal got much more healthy. My normal got much more in balance. Some of you may not even believe it because you think I never work anymore, but I used to work 60 to 65 hours a week. I used to leave for work some days at 5 in the morning and not get back until 10 at night. And we called it good because I was doing it all for God. I was doing it all for the church until my life imploded and crashed and burned. And people would look and go, well, he really loves his youth because look how many hours a week he spends. But the problem was I was running from everything else and trying to find some sense of fulfillment in what I was doing. And I was going to force things to happen and make things happen but activity was not necessarily healthy activity. It was just me doing more. And as I began to change, and as I began to shape, and as I began to, for the first time in my life, actually take a Sabbath, I hated it. I hated a day off. And you go, what? We love days off. I hated it. Because it gave me hours to think about what I could be doing or should be doing. It gave me hours to think about how Boy, if I were doing this, I could actually be reaching people today instead of sitting around doing nothing. And people are like, 24-7, on the grind, I'm on the hustle, I'm doing the work. That's not what God called us to. And I had to change and begin to do that. I had to change the way a lot of my thought patterns happened. If I want to make God Lord in my life, there are things I have to change. And nobody wants to do that. I have to change things I don't want to get rid of because they make me feel good because it's a security blanket of some type. I only do this a little bit. I only do this once in a while. I only revert back to whatever that sin is when I'm really stressed or when I'm really angry with my spouse or when I'm really scared or when we're really in financial crunch and I don't know what else to do. And that's how, that's how I relieve stress. But you know that God has said, it's time for you to move beyond that. Because when I was a child, I did things as a child. And now, and you go, well, I wasn't just a child. I did that last year. And God's looking and saying, yeah, but it's time to give it up and move on. It's time to establish and have healthy relationships. It's time to have healthy communication. It's time to change these things that we don't want to change. But if you really want God as Lord in your life, I'm not talking just somebody you know. I'm not talking about, am I going to heaven or not? Just tell me that, Jeff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about full-on, sold-out, God is moving in my life, and he is Lord of 
lords and king of kings. And in my life, every thought, every decision, and everything I do is as a result of how I respond and how I react to him. And until that begins to happen, I'll always just kind of be, you know, me and Jesus, we're cool. But he's looking and saying, there's so much more for you. And it's not about what you're doing. It's about who you're becoming. And I have such a great plan for you. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for a hope and a future. Plans to give you success and to prosper you. That's what his plan is for our life. But we keep holding on to, but if I, if I really do that, I might have to give this thing up. And this thing makes me feel safe. And he's saying, give that up and move forward. Change the way your thought process is. Change the way your actions, change your reaction and begin to walk in and understand who I am. And that thing that we cling to, that thing that is so important becomes less and less important. As I lay down those palm branches and as I lay down that coat and as I lay down that garbage in front of him, he's able to just walk on by it and I don't have to pick it back up. I don't have to pick that up. I get to lay that down, and I get to move forward. But only you can do it. No one takes it from you. No one says, okay, I'm going to take that sin from you now. That arrogance, that pride, that drug, that whatever it is, physical or mental or spiritual or emotional, whatever that thing is, you're the one who has to give it up. First step in AA, not that you guys are alcoholics, but the first step is admitting I'm an alcoholic. First step in making Jesus really Lord in your life is saying, this is the thing that I'm holding on to that's more important than you. And I've got to give it up so that I can move forward. Friday, we have a time of remembrance for the sacrifice. The sacrifice Jesus willingly made. God wasn't a barbarian who ordered his son to be murdered. He was a loving father who said, this is the way so that people can come into relationship with me. And then next Sunday is a time of celebration of that resurrection. I would encourage you, if at all possible, be here both Friday and Sunday. It's a great contrast. It really is. It's a great contrast that says, This is the sacrifice he made and this is the joy and the fruit of that sacrifice. We get to walk in that and walk freely in it. Father God, I thank you for your grace and I thank you, God, that you look at us and you have a plan and a purpose. But you also see that thing that we're clinging to, that thing that's holding us back. God, help us to just, with open hands, Recognize it, offer it up to you, and walk away from it. Let us walk free from those things today that, as Paul says, so easily ensnare us. Those things that we just get tangled into. Help us to walk away from that and walk freely in you, Father God. In your precious name. Amen.